Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with Mr. Tom Jokic. And I have to say, we have access to one of the most brilliant, deep archives of interviews anywhere in popular music. And it is our great good fortune and pleasure to be able to share it with you. Right. And this week, it's a really interesting show because it's quite a bit different than normal. Mm-hmm. Now, normally we play highlights from some of our favorite interviews from the vaults. This week, we are remembering some of our favorite moments from those interviews. Now, we've heard from so many people in recent weeks, including Elvis Presley, Fleetwood Mac, David Bowie, John Lennon, Elton John, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, Chrissy Hind, Linda Ronstadt, so many others. And we have our favorites. We have the funniest answer, the most poignant remark, the weirdest comment. On this episode, we're going to focus on the first 10 episodes or so because they're the ones that we haven't heard in a while. So get ready because the clips will be coming at a pretty fast pace. Let's get started. Okay, so even though we're not doing this in any order at all, I want to start with our very first interview from our very first episode. And this is Janet Jackson from 2004, just weeks after the notorious Super Bowl incident. Of course, she wasn't eager to talk about it. We were actually told not to. But we were well into a really great chat with her when she opened up just a little about the Super Bowl. And it's a pretty interesting and funny story. The day that I came home after the... Super Bowl, which I really don't talk about anymore, but I'll tell you this story. I I came home, and there was a major storm in L.A., so my cable was out. I didn't see television for two days, (laughs) so that was great. So I didn't have to deal with it for two days. Then there was everything after that. That was divine intervention. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Good timing. Oh, wow. So she didn't even know what controversy was brewing until a few days later. That's really great. You know, we also asked her what it was like growing up around Motown legends, like what does Janet remember when she thinks of Smokey Robinson? Those eyes. I remember those <laughs> eyes. They were so light. Yeah, it was It was really wonderful. Um, uh, oh, Sammy Davis Jr., I remember yeah. being at the house. Mm-hmm. So all of these people would have influenced you then, musically, a, of course. Right? A great deal. The mm-hmm. biggest was uh, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. and, and Sammy for myself. I was always drawn to the guys as opposed to the women, to the females. Mm-hmm. Well, people like Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, of course, wrote a lot of their own material, where some of those other Motown artists didn't, so maybe you were... Maybe that's what it is. ...drawn to them for that reason. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I, maybe I always thought it had something to do with being so partial to my brothers as opposed to my sisters, so being mm-hmm. drawn to them in that way. But, mm-hmm. you know, you might be right. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite anecdotes about the origins of a song came from Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees in talking about the writing of one of their biggest hits. When I interviewed them, I mentioned that on first hearing this song, to me, it didn't sound like the Bee Gees. I'll never forget when I heard Jive talk, and this is a fan response to you, but I remember I was driving along in my car. It was one of those times when you actually stop the car and you go, I can't believe this song. And I, of course, like many other fans, I'm sure have told you, I had no idea who it was. Mm -hmm. But... By the end of it, before I heard the announcer, I, I said, I know those voices, and, I know, and now, of course, it sounds quintessentially Bee Gees, but mm-hmm. at the time, it sounded so different yeah. from what you had done. Well, we were coming out of hiatus. We were coming out of a period of time where we hadn't really had a record out in four or five years. Mm-hmm. So that sort of uh, added to the mystery, and uh, the fact that you might have known who we were, but in fact, the, the music was so different than what we'd been doing uh, that you weren't sure who it was. And, um, but that, the idea of that song came from um, a, a, an old bridge in Miami, which we used to drive over every night to go to the studio, Criteria. And one night, during those sessions, we drove over this bridge, and the actual clickety-click, 
whatever it was, was happening to the wheels of the car as it was going over the bridge. Mm. And, and the concept for the song came right, and the title came there and there. And we got home, I think we finished the song that That's night. Right, yeah. yeah. So we had to kind of play it to a reef. Yeah. That yeah. was and 40 miles an hour was exactly the right tempo. Not beats per minute, but miles per hour. It was, it was 120 yeah, yeah, yeah. beats per minute right on the nose. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Just the rhythm of the vehicle going over that, uh, over that train bridge. That's fantastic. Okay, let's keep going. We're playing some of our favorite highlights from some of our favorite interviews so far on Famous Last Words. Christopher, we both love David Bowie a lot. But you have mm-hmm. to admit, this one clip made us laugh for a number of reasons. Bowie, a true artist, he thought like one, he created like one, and as we found out here, he lived like one. So a fairly simple question about owning a home became a declaration of integrity to his art. I live a a comparatively Spartan lifestyle. Um, I'm not a a flamboyant liver at all. I have a pretty nice house. I have no house at all. Where are all those photographs taken? People Magazine and Circus and all those others? Oh, anybody's house that the photographer generally knows Ah. somebody. I've never had a house and I don't intend buying one. It's never occurred to me to have one. That would be ruinous to, um, I think, to what I do, which is generally a a state of transience. That's been a a strong force through all my work. And I think to uh, commit myself to something that had a a, a sort of a centre, a pivot, like a home, per se, or a piece of land somewhere, that would... uh, ridicule everything I'm doing. Okay. I love when artists get really high-minded about their work. (laughs) (laughs) Great stuff. Tom, I had the incredible good fortune to meet Paul McCartney on the eve of his Flowers in the Dirt tour, uh, which went over from 1989 to 1990. He hadn't played in years. And on this show, he performed many Beatle classics that had never been played live, including Hey Jude. He talked about the origin of one of their best-loved songs. There's such a debate yeah, over who yeah. it was written for, of yeah. course. No, it was, it's, it's Julian. That's, that, that story about Julian's true. I, that's how it was. I was uh, driving out to John's house, but the, he and Cynthia had just got divorced. And I knew Cynthia and Julian, obviously, family. So I was going out, I think, just to say hello. Uh, the story ended up, I was going out to ask Cynthia to marry me, but that was a joke. Really, honestly. But no, I was just going out there to pay a visit and stuff. Uh, Out of friendship. And on the way out, I got thinking about Julian's position in the divorce. And uh, and, and thought in my mind, hey, Jules, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Um, And then, for some reason, I changed it. Maybe to not, you know, to protect the innocent. Mm. Just, hey, Jude. Jude just seemed a harder name, a little cooler name in a way. We got into trouble because I didn't realize Jude is Jew. You know, in Hitler in, in the war, Jude and Raus, the Nazi said. And I really didn't realize that. I, I Jude, I, it's just a name I'd heard. It sounded to me like a biblical name or something. Ezekiel, Jude, Sha, you know, Shadrach, all of those names, Shadrach, Abednego. And, um, we wrote it up on a on a, uh, a shop that we were opening in London, and we, we wrote, "Hey, Jude," because it was just coming out. It was like an advert on the window, and some Jewish bloke who had a delicatessen rang up. He said, "I'll send my sons around to beat you up." How dare you? You know, he was like quivering with rage. I said, "What's the problem?" He said, "Well, that was, you know, Jude." He said, "Because because we'd written it on the shop window too." Yeah. 
it reminded him of that. And in fact, when I see the historical pictures now of Germany then, I can see what he meant. Honest to God, it was a total coincidence. Mm. But uh, I had to say, oh, look, honest, I'm sorry, but really, it doesn't mean anything to do with that. It's a nice song, honest. Because he was pretty strange, the things that happened. Wow, I had no idea about all that controversy about the sign and everything like that. Very interesting. You know, McCartney, when he's doing interviews, he's so present. It's like he's reliving that moment again for you in conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the best things about hearing these old interviews is hearing from the artists who have since passed away. Because hearing them when they are happy and healthy, I don't know, I, I find it kind of healing. So one of my favorite moments is when we talked to Michael Hutchins in 1997, just months before he died. And he and mm. Gary from In Excess, this is a funny clip, were talking with interviewer Dale Smith about the infamous Gallagher brothers from Oasis. Your name, uh, Michael, comes up in uh, Rolling Stone magazine a little while ago. Mm -hmm. Did you hear what about was, that? What was it, was the, it was the, inc the incident that happened with, uh, who was it, from Oasis, one of those... It's been a couple. Everyone in England, in London, has had one. <laughs> Last time I saw Tricky, you know, Tricky, the the the, the singer, you know, yep. yeah, he, he just finished whacking the crap out of Liam in the toilets. <laughs> Every, yeah, yeah. He's been. They've all been punched by yeah. the best of us. Yeah. Yeah. I've been standing in line for a while, but I just can't get near him. I know. Yeah. Jeez, what's with those guys? And apparently, was it at the Brit Awards where they got up? Yeah, and yeah. they were just. You know? Yeah, uh, well, I don't know. It's weird, you know. I, I, they're they're a little edgy, edgy due to due to A class, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a little paranoid. <laughs> um, I just I just sat, sat did down. You get that? that one, yeah. Okay, I just I was being subtle. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know. Too much cups of who tea. cares? You know, it's it's uh, the problem with Noel is, uh, <laughs> and I know him, and it's he, one minute he's really nice, next minute he's just scum, you know, to people. And uh, the problem, have you? Do you know? Did you ever have a have a, um, uh, a show called The Thunderbirds? You know, Thunderbirds. <laughs> the Thunderbirds has puppets. Yeah, puppets yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. FAB. Remember Parker? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's my Noel lady. Gallagher. <laughs> yes, my lady. Yes, my lady. Should I bring the car around, my lady? Yeah. It's um, kind of sad because when we arrived in Vancouver to record, it's like, yeah, the, the, the you know the, the bellboys saying, yeah, the, uh, you know, Oasis were here last night for the first time. They played the arena, and it's like, great. How was it? Well, they walked off after three songs because someone <laughs> threw a sand shoe on stage. It's like, yep. <laughs> That's tough. really looking after your fans. Yeah. Tough guys. Yeah, it's like, yeah Jesus Christ. I don't know. They should try you know, a couple of nights in the Australian pubs and see how they go. <laughs> Toughen them up. Yeah. That the shoe will be filled <laughs> and inserted. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. It's, I wish them the best, but I think they better get over themselves a bit. <laughs> It's so oh, funny. Man. It's so funny that everybody that wants is. to take a swing at Noel and Liam. Very funny. Tom, Elvis Costello was at his irascible best in this interview from 1989. The rant kicked off when I asked, innocently, I thought, about looking back. And it quickly veered off into his distaste for rock versus rock and roll. You seem to have been very, almost unforgiving about your own previous work. You say that you wrote too many songs and made too many albums. Why, why is that? You just tough on yourself? Well... Uh. No, I, I say that one day, but then the next day you might ask me and I might say, no, they're all fantastic. You know, I mean, uh, it's just the mood I'm in at the moment, you know. I don't have any set opinions. My opinions about things are not set in concrete, like some people seem, seem to. You know, there's, you know, the worst thing that ever happened, in my opinion, was about 1969, they coined this word rock, you know. 
before it was used to be called rock and roll and then they thought rock and roll had kind of been around since like 55 or something so we had to find a new name for it and the minute they took the roll out of it that, that's when that's when a lot of the lights went out for me you know uh, i think rock and roll is a euphemism for sex you know and that's a beautiful kind of joyous human sort of thing and a rock is a thing you dig up in the ground it doesn't move it doesn't breathe it doesn't dance around it doesn't buy you a drink you know and ro and rock is really what is responsible for most of the boredom of today i think so you know i i can't really i can't really look back on my own stuff because everything is set in this kind of conception of rock it's like a big rock and roll mount rushmore you know with jimmy and you know, talented people have been set up there as well as untalented people. You've got, you know, you've got the two Jimmys, you know, you've got, the, you know, Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix or, you know, Jimmy somebody else, you know. And, so. and I just, I, I just don't think it's any fun. I want it to be alive. I want the music jumping around the room at me or sort of crawling across the floor, you know, with its tongue hanging out. But I can't think of it like... Um, a history lesson. I'm not interested in getting into any time machine. Oh, wow. He was in fine form. You and I have talked a lot about this interview and how, at the time, you had perceived it to be kind of um, an interview that had gone south for you, but in retrospect, you had a, a total reimagining or reawakening about how good that interview really was. But he really was cranky at times during this piece. Wonderfully so. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Mr. Costello, what do you really think of metal music? I never consider heavy metal music. Why should I? It never considers me. <laughs> it's boring. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's boring music for boring people, by boring people. I'm just amazed it's still around, that's all. Don't blame me. I don't make heavy metal music. I hate Led Zeppelin <laughs> and everything they've spawned, so, I mean, you know. Okay, great stuff from the cranky Elvis Costello. All right, Tom, what do you got for us now? I want to play two examples right now, Christopher, of lead singers of famous groups who made solo albums, much to the chagrin of their pretty ticked-off bandmates. Now, remember, we were talking about that last week when we talked, uh, when we had those interviews with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. But first up this time around mm. is Steve Perry, whose reaction is pretty interesting when interviewer Larry Wilson asks him about the reaction to his solo album from the other guys in Journey. Listen to this. Steve, one of your guys in Journey um, described your LP in two words. <laughs> Where'd you hear this? I don't mean to be difficult, but it's been written somewhere that uh, somebody in your band, unnamed, said, it sucks. I don't happen to agree, and I'm sure you don't. Well, um, well I get, it got turned around to it sucks, but I, I don't know exactly what the words were anymore. I, ha I, I really didn't want to mention who it was. Uh, it just, it's, you know, it's a little annoying when everybody else does their projects, and it was, um, I was very glad for everybody to do their projects. Um, there was a couple done by uh, uh, Steve Smith, a couple done by Neil, and Jonathan's been doing his projects with his wife. And really? So you should get the same amount of respect, right? Well, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't done any ever. I, I thought I'd be the last one to go out and do something, I because I was a very team player. Mm -hmm. And when I decided to do one... Um, I did, at least I didn't think I would get bad reviews. At least it's a little bit better than that. But that's okay. I mean, from the guys' reviews, you know. Right, from within your own group. I, I don't mind. I'm, that's all right. Is Journey still a, a viable uh, uh, product for you? I think so, yeah. You never know. I mean, we're all, we're all just sort of in separate places right now. Yeah. And um, I guess that we're going to get together and do some talking here pretty quick. Oh, wow. And, of course, 
Steve makes a great, heartfelt case for why he had to make that album. It was therapy for him. It was necessary for him as an artist, and it was also very successful. Which, of course, once that happens, that really changes the dynamic in a band and how necessary you are and how valuable you are to the band. Okay, and that leads us to Lou Graham, the lead singer of Foreigner. So Lou tells the guys in Foreigner that he wants to make an album, and they are not supportive at all. Again, let's refer back to Stevie Nicks last week when she tells her bandmates that she wants to make her Belladonna album. So the guys in Foreigner think that Lou is going to dilute the Foreigner brand and sidetrack their plans, which is understandable. They also threaten to carry on without him, which is not understandable. But the band comes to their sentence. (laughs) But the band comes to their senses when Lou does the unthinkable. He releases his album, and it becomes a pretty big hit. Here's Lou. Apparently, Mick and and, and the rest of the guys kind of um, had a little bit of time to think about the implications of of Foreigner with a new singer and and came to their senses a little bit about uh, maybe keeping the band as it is intact and just uh, adjusting their thoughts to to the fact that uh, I can have a solo career mm-hmm. and uh, and and that the two would enhance each other instead of being so maybe uh, overly concerned about uh, me uh, committing some sort of disloyalty to the band. Lou said that his imprint was definitely a part of the Foreigner sound. I do put a lot of myself into the Foreigner music. It just has to uh, conform to... It comes to the, out vocally yeah. rather than songwriting. And, well, uh, a lot of my melodies are, are in the Foreigner songs, but it's just kind of having a little a little more input and a little freer of, of a hand, a little more respect for my opinion. That's where I've been running into problems. And uh, so it, it's a workable situation, but it's, it, it's not what I aspire to. Uh, indefinitely going head to head with him i mean uh, i mean I, i'm sure he has a little more respect for for what i'm capable of now and we kind of look at each other as equals mm-hmm. on all levels uh, but i don't hope to to come in and start intimidating him with with my ideas i just you know i think it's at this point the band's been together for 10 years he should have his way and just go with it i'll help him but um, when it comes to my project, don't get in my way. Mm. The funny thing is that in both cases, Steve Perry and Lou Graham, they both had hit albums, they both went back to their right. bands and recorded again, but nothing was ever quite the same, and they didn't stay with the bands, and nor did the hits that came afterwards really amount to a whole lot. Now, both guys have recently reconciled with their old groups, but neither one has permanently reunited. But it's interesting to hear the moment when the splintering from their bands began. Okay, a few minutes ago we talked about David Bowie and that great clip about how he would never want to own a house. And speaking of David Bowie, something I never knew was that he and Peter Frampton were boyhood friends. And I really love this Frampton interview from 1989. He was funny and smart and very honest about dealing with fame. But here he is talking about working with David Bowie on the Glass Spider tour in the mid-'80s. We um, actually went to school together for one year. My father was David's art teacher. He's the head of the art department. And um, so, yes, I've known David since I was 12. So, um, and he's always been a little strange. No. Um, <laughs> so, um, it was, I, I don't know, it, it wasn't inevitable, but it was, um, in fact, it was quite a surprise to get the call from David to, you, but you never know what he's going to do, do you? Which is the good thing about David. So, it was uh, an honor, you know, and uh, David called me up after uh, he'd heard the Premonition record 
and uh, loved my guitar playing on that, said so, and asked me to do some of that on his. Would I play on his record? I said, absolutely. So I went, um, went and did that um, towards the end of 86. And then he's, after a couple of days, he said, oh, look, look, we've got to take this further. I'm going to do the tour. Would you, would you be the, you know, the special attraction <laughs> as the guitarist? So it was just uh, was not a dream come true, but, I mean, close to it. I mean, to do something that, that terrific, um, but it's nothing to do... Well, it is my career, but... Not as Peter Frampton, the solo artist. Mm. It was nice. It's nice to diversify and get away from things. Now, Christopher, we posted a picture of Bowie and Frampton on Facebook a few weeks ago, and Peter Frampton right, right. actually messaged us on Facebook and thanked us for posting <laughs> it. Cool. He said it was his favorite picture of he and David from that area, and it was great to hear from him. And don't forget, you can be just like Peter Frampton and follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. This is like the highlight reel of Famous Lost Words as we play some of our favorite moments from past episodes. Christopher? In this interview with Leonard Cohen from the mid-1980s, he talks about a recent and hugely successful European tour that he'd done. But he also talks about the challenges of trying to play your own hometown. And you just finished speaking of accolades, a, a very successful European tour. 45 dates, is that right? Yes, 45 concerts uh, right across the continent. And you talked about one show in Paris where you did 17 encores. Well, it felt like that. It was about another, almost another hour of uh, encores, yeah. Now, it's funny. The reviews were great, uh, except the, one, the quote I was handed was the Montreal critic who says he had all the charisma of a small-town undertaker. Some of those guys are pretty flashy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's very hard to get a good review in Montreal. Yes. The standards are very, very high. Well, you're going to go back and try it one more time. You've got... Uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver dates coming up. Yes, Montreal is always very hard because the entire audience is filled with friends and relatives. It's very hard to perform that way. Do they know you too well? Yes, I think that's it. You're listening to Famous Lost Words with Tom Jokic and Christopher Ward, and this show is so much fun to do, Tom, and one of the reasons is the feature that is called When Rock Stars Attack. Sure. And boy, sometimes the rock stars really do attack. We heard just from uh, Burton Cummings a few weeks ago where he's just taking a run at people like David Bowie and Mark Bolin and Alice Cooper. But sometimes we could call it When Rock Stars Are Attacked. First, let's revisit a moment (laughs) from Carly Simon who told us about the time when famed rock critic Robert Criscow was awfully mean to her. Well, one time Robert Christgau wrote a review of the No Secrets album, and it said that on You're So Vain, Carly Simon sounds like a horse whinnying. Wow. And I, and it just, I mean, that was one of a number of, of just, you know, comments that just stabbed me. You walked into the party like you were I read it and I wrote him a letter, which was the only letter that I've written to a to a music critic who's written who's written a review of, about me. And I just said, I wonder if you know that that people that you say these things about are really human and take these yes. things to heart, and and that they're not just sort of you know performers who are above it all and and ride ride around in limousines and don't care care about anything except for their next dollar. You know, people have hearts and. And, and he wrote me a letter back saying, 
that since that time he'd listened to the album some more and in fact he'd grown to like it. It was a very open letter, it was a very warm letter and, and it was as if by my opening myself to him, by making the contact to, with him and making the admission that I was actually hurt, that he'd sort of gotten in what he wanted to get in, which was the little stab, and now we could be friends, you know. And, but, and, and also in the letter, he also said something about, about uh, James and myself coming from well-to-do families and that there, was, that there was something about the fact that we had come from rich parents that turned him off and that made him believe that we, that we couldn't have souls that there couldn't be any soul in our songs. Oh, man. Oh, man. That is really rough talk. And I'm sure... You got to be tough. Yeah, for sure. Now, from that very same episode, we have our chat with Cher. She told us about her relationship with Sonny and what it was really like, and it did not resemble the relationship that they played out for the cameras on the Sonny and Cher TV show. Sonny was the whole thing. You know, he guided the whole number, and then he was very harsh, kind of, in a way, you know, like where are you and what are you doing and, and all that. And, and after a while, I felt, you know, I was grown up and I really wasn't doing anything, but I would like to go, you know, shopping or something like that. And he just wasn't into that. He really, like, people thought I was really brazen on the TV show, you know, and putting him down all that. That was something that was an act, you know. I mean, it was fun and we would have it, but it was nothing that was ever carried home because he's very Victorian as a man, you know. When the woman gets home, she all of a sudden becomes the wife, and the wife is definitely behind the husband. So, Tom, looking back uh, over our early episodes, one of my favorite interviews was a 1988 chat with Glenn Fry of the Eagles. He talked about a lot of things, his solo work, how he became a much healthier person. Wow. But the memorable part came when our interviewer, Roger Bartell, asked him about some comments made by the former Eagles producer, Glenn Johns. This is what he says, one of the many things he says. Glenn Fry was far more verbose about being the leader of the Eagles than Henley was. My major problem with the Eagles was the desire of Glenn Fry to be the leader of the band, and Glenn and Don's opinion that their writing was far stronger than anybody else's. They were quite superior in their attitude to the other songs. Don and Glenn became so insecure about the end result that they weren't going to have anything that they didn't think was up to their quality of writing on the record. Now, they may be right to think that way. I'm not knocking them out of hand, but I didn't agree with them, and I could see that it could cause a hell of a cleft in the band. It could easily be dealt with if they just relax a little bit, and the band would stay together as a great musical unit, which it was. So there was a clash, and eventually they became what they considered to be rock and roll. They filled the band with guitar players who played rock and roll. They turned themselves into what they thought a rock and roll band should be. A pretty lame one, in my view. Awful. But they were wonderful at other things. Comment? He's entitled to his opinion. I knew you were going to say that. You know, it's a free, it's a free country, mm-hmm. and it's a free world. Do you agree and, with anything he said there? Oh, I probably think uh, he's definitely right about the fact that Henley and I felt that we knew what kind of songs should be written for the Eagles. The and Texas saying again, that, it ain't it, bragging if it's true. You guys no. were stronger writers? Hey, all I can tell you is look at the record. Glenn Johns was dismissed as the Eagles producer after two and a half albums because of the opinions that he expressed right there. You mm-hmm. know, Glenn Johns was tired of rock and roll. Glenn Johns was burned out. Glenn Johns spent hours, days, and weeks and months in the studio with the Stones, waiting for Keith to get it together. And the Who. With the Faces, mm-hmm. with the Who. So you take this guy, and what he, he was, uh, Glenn Johns, in his heart of hearts, really, I think, was always sort of a folk music guy. Mm-hmm. He lo- what he loved about the Eagles was the vocals. 
He would have been happy for us to do songs like Train Leaves Here This Morning and Peaceful Easy Feeling and ride off into the sunset that way. But if you want to have a successful career and you want to sell out, you know, large halls and play baseball stadiums and try to make it to the top of Mount Moolah, I think you have to be more multidimensional than that. You notice that the Eagles never abandon their vocals. We may have added guitar players to the band, but we never, we never strayed away from what I felt our strong suit was, which was songwriting and singing. Uh, you know, so some of the stuff that he says, I guess you might say, is true. You know, he's, he's entitled to his opinion, but, you know, as I say, the albums that Glenn produced, you know, sold around 500,000. Hmm. The albums that we did after him sold increasingly more numbers, hmm. you know. Well, that we may or may not have numbers. to do with him, but... I think it does. Yeah. I think it's got something to do with him. Oh, wow. And, you know, that is one of my favorite moments when Glenn Fry just stands up for himself and says, you know what? Glenn was right. Don and I did think we ruled the roost. That's very interesting. Okay, our 2010 chat with Prince was really interesting. In a way, it was pretty light. We didn't have time to dig deep. We only had a few minutes with him. And the only real revealing thing that he said was that he's a much different person in 2010 than he was in 1982. We were playing a song of his that was kind of originally written in 1982 but came out in 2010. And he said mm-hmm. he was a much different person because now he was one of Jehovah's Witnesses and he didn't sing about those same themes anymore. So that was very interesting. Hmm. But what is great about this interview is also how playful he is, even though it starts very quiet. And as we all know, Prince was a very shy guy, didn't like to do interviews at all. But as you can hear in this brief clip, he could be relaxed and charming. So can you tell us what we can expect at your concerts tonight and tomorrow night? Anything, uh, any little uh, any little teases you want to give us? Uh, well, you know, we live to get funky, so it's going to be pretty powerful from song one. And uh, like I say, with the audience, as long as they're there, we'll stay. We have enough material to play three, four hours, you know. That's amazing. I hope you play three to four hours. Well, you say that until you get up the next morning. (laughs) (laughs) I had no voice the last time we were here. You brought on Nelly Furtado on stage, and you kept playing and playing, and I thought I had no voice the next day. I had such a great time. I haven't seen her in a minute. What's up with her? She is working on a new album. It's coming out in the spring, and uh, she sings your praises all the time. Now, you have quite a strong Toronto connection. Uh, everybody knows that you once lived here for a period of time. What was it about Toronto that, that drew you here? I really dug the um, cosmopolitan aspect of it and the fact that, uh, you know, they were so anti-establishment. <laughs> By the way, I, um, I met the gardener who used to landscape your property when you lived in Toronto, and he said to say hello. Oh, here we go. <laughs> 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 That's great stuff. Great stuff from Prince. Truly from one of the most gifted live performers of all time. For sure. Prince from 2010. We're playing some of our favorite highlights from past episodes of Famous Lost Words. Coming up, we had fun with Mick Jagger, and Christopher tells the best Robert Plant story you will ever hear, guaranteed. Tom, the day after the Who's 25th anniversary tour hit Toronto in June of 89, I spoke with Pete Townsend. His portrayal of a typical Who fan was quite entertaining and unexpected. He also talks about what he feels the band gets back while performing. I felt that it was like the last night's show was like a gift to the audience, and I'm wondering what you get back from the audience in a situation like that. Not very much. (laughs) Seriously, not very much. And we get their money. And, uh... And, and we hear we hear a lot of uh, 
I wish we got more back, but Stadium Rock is not very good for the performer. The, I don't think it's very good really for the for the uh, for the audience either, really. But it's like something that we're stuck with. It's a pity, really. I think when the light when 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 we go on in daylight. In fact, I hate it because you can see the audience. You can see them all in there in their who t-shirts, kind of waiting. You know what's going to happen now, and confused and trying to find their seats, and you know, you know surreptitiously getting out their joints and sort of maybe it will be better now and then when the lights go down and it becomes a little bit more like theatre slowly but surely it starts to grow into something it's nice to hear you say it's a gift to the audience because that's really really what we want to do I mean we want to do that but we also want to make ourselves happy as a gift to the audience because so much of the Who's performing career and recording career has been tortured, you know, and uh, and I think there's a feeling that you know maybe that maybe that our fans are kind of weird because they want to see this band suffer, and I think you know what's actually what what's these people suffer, you know, they want to see blood being spilt or whatever. I don't think that's really been what has motivated Who fans. I think what's motivated the serious Who fans is that they they know the secret, they know that if you look below the surface, you know, if you go past those you know, wild stage shows of, of, of the late 60s, early 70s, that uh, what you come to is a band that wrote silly little songs about, you know, I don't know what sex I am. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, I really want my mummy back now. You know, and that those things are what, you know, when you're a big, tough adolescent, you know, and you're drinking maybe 10 Budweiser's a night, you know, and smoking four or five joints a week, and and you know, and then a couple of years you're going to do the really serious stuff, and maybe beat somebody up last week, you know, and and uh, and you've been laid 15 times. In fact, you haven't been laid at all, but you know, you've been laid 15 times. Uh, what you're going through is you're, you're you're desperately trying to, you know, take this kid, you know, this child uh, into adulthood. You know, and you're trying to find out what you've got to leave behind and what you can carry on. And and uh, and I think that's what the Who were really good at talking about. They were really good at making people in the audience laugh at themselves. You know that thing about you know here we are, we make a really fierce expression. And uh, but people know underneath that you know we're we're making this really fierce expression, but really we're complete wimps. You know, because the only thing that we ever beat up is hotel rooms. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is one of the most interesting mm. clips I've ever heard. We apologize for the sound quality on that, but that is so fascinating because at first he says we get nothing back from the audience, and it and it sounds so cynical, and then he kind of warms up to the point where he can kind of relate what that audience member is like and what they're going through. Boy, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think he in the end does show great affection for Who fans for sure. Okay, Robert Plant. This clip is four and a half seconds long. So blink <laughs> and you miss it. Indulgence. Cough and you miss it. Okay, so how to encapsulate Robert Plant's feelings about his past in Led Zeppelin and especially his feelings for their biggest hit. And he did it quite nicely in just four and a half seconds in this clip from our 1988 interview 
when we asked him what Zeppelin songs he was going to play on his upcoming solo tour. Oh, I don't know. I'll have to wait and see what you fancy doing. But it won't be that long, boring bugger. <laughs> Come on. That, that long, boring bugger? Yeah. He just called Stairway to Heaven <laughs> that long, boring bugger. Okay, what a cranky old bugger he is. Oh, he's he's a funny, <laughs> funny guy. I have a plant story for you. When uh, Alana was on tour with Robert as his opening act, they were uh, a couple for a while, shall we yes. say? Yes, yes. And... Um, he was. He We're was talking really, about Land of Miles here for anybody who's new to the game here. Okay, he was on. really fun to hang out with because I was on a lot of that tour, and he'd have dinner with the crew members and everything. Very, very loose, easygoing guy. Anyway, he invited me and a few of my friends to join he and Alana at Spago Restaurant, which at the time was that was Wolfgang Puck's sort of first restaurant. You know, he's the celebrity chef, mm-hmm. and it was a very prestigious place to go. Mm-hmm. So we go, and it's kind of like. If you could imagine having dinner with Henry VIII, it's like he's carrying, <laughs> you know, more wine for all my friends in the, in the court. You know, it's like that yes. kind of having dinner with him. And I was sitting right beside him, and it was it was hilarious. I mean, he just, he knows how to carry the moment, okay? Yeah. So at one point, um, Wolfgang Puck, who's trying desperately to curry favor, brings out a pizza, because that was what he served, in the shape of a double-necked guitar. <laughs> I know, which I loved. Anyway, the dinner goes on and on, and so then he and Alana are sort of swanning around the room saying yes. hi to various people and stuff, and so I'm there, and among my friends is Mike Myers. He's at the dinner as well. Wow. And every time Plant says something outrageous, he and I look at each other and pretend to be taking notes, right, <laughs> during the whole dinner. I think Mike might have used those notes later on in the Austin Powers <laughs> stuff, but, I mean, so anyway, finally, at the end of the night, you know, they're busy doing their thing, and, and I'm thinking, this is one of the weirdest nights I've ever experienced, and we go out to the valet parking, and who's there but Don Rickles and his wife. <laughs> And he's saying to her, he's like, You're Hey, honey, do you know who that was in there? That was Led Zeppelin. Yeah, the guy with the broad and the hair. Yeah, we were, hey, we were having dinner with Led Zeppelin. You know who that guy is, don't you, honey? It's like, I'm thinking, I, this didn't really happen. I'm just oh making this God. up as it goes along. It, yes. So, and one more, just little button on the story. Yeah. He stuck me with the bill. No way. He did. He did. Oh, my God. It was worth it. Wow. So he's dating Alana, and he sticks you with the bill. <laughs> After inviting me to dinner that's, at Spago. Oh, that's great. Can I, I ask think it's the most much, expensive dinner I've well, ever... Well, well how, much, how many people were there in total? Oh, there was like six of us. Okay, and how much was that bill? Do you remember? No idea. Okay. <laughs> it's best forgotten. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. But there was a singe mark on the edge of my credit card when oh, I got no it Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's smoking. Got a couple more for me, Tom? Okay, I love this interview. This is Boy George and John Moss from Culture Club, and this is from their very early days. So probably about 1981, 82. Mm -hmm. John came from playing with punk bands, so this was a real about face for him, that pop, that glossy pop sound. And he was glad to be out of that scene, which he found a bit self-important. And here is John, and especially Boy George, talking about being commercial. When we started this band, we talked a lot you know, initially with ourselves, you know, so we knew what we wanted. We knew that we wanted to be commercial and that we wanted to be pop, Mm -hmm. popular, you know, like, we don't want people saying, oh, yeah, you know, like, I can really understand what you're, you know, what you're trying to say. Your deep hidden message. No, you know, there there is certain ingredients. I'm sure you get that, though, right? No, there are certain ingredients. It's almost like James Dean. There was a program in England about James Dean and there was this, like, girl, and she was saying, when you were in that film, man, I just knew exactly what you were thinking. And he was saying, no, 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 you don't. It was was a film. He's saying I was a film. It was a film, and I think you can get reality 
and image and the whole thing completely out of context. I mean, the thing is, you were saying, like, the new music thing. In England, when we started this band, we never... Well, number one, we didn't associate with anyone. We broke this band on their own. We played pubs. People were spitting at me, throwing glasses at me and calling me all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. right? And we stood up there and we played what we had to do. We did our job. And basically, that's what we do now. You know, we don't, we're not part of the new music. You know, there are bands that wish to associate. And I think it's probably easier for them to associate with other groups. But with us, I think if, if what we're doing doesn't stand up for itself, then we might as well give up. So really, what we're doing is we are Culture Club, you know, in the same way that the police are the police. Oh, for sure. And they really did have a distinctive sound. It's too bad it didn't last a bit longer. You know, Rolling Stone had a great article about the rise and fall of Boy George around the time when that fall happened. And when he just made an about face and he was so anti-drug and then he became deeply involved in drugs. And it really hurt him and his career and it hurt the band. Uh, but, you know, there's another example of a band that shot to fame and ultimately just couldn't handle it for one reason or another. Such a talented guy and so articulate, too. Yeah, for sure. Okay, one final highlight. Let's go to Mick Jagger in conversation with me in 2001. And I had a lot of fun talking to Mick for just seven minutes, but I feel like he really got engaged in the conversation when I asked him about being a dad. What kind of a kid were you? Uh, and are you still like that little boy from many years ago, for example? When you, were... <laughs> you know, I guess you're always the same person that you were. You know, you can't be another person. You can change somewhat. But, you know, within you, I guess you're always, you know, that you, you're always that, that kid is still alive in you somewhere. Um, and... You know, I was I was always like a kid that liked to have a lot of laughs and a lot of fun and I liked to do imitations of people and I liked to sing and dance and, you know, and fool around. And, and I can see that, that that's still kind of there, you know. So I think you're always, you're always the child within you is, uh, is always there, which is great. I mean, you, and you still got to remember it's still there, you know. That's one of the things you, you always got to think of. So there you go, some highlights from our first 10 episodes of Famous Lost Words, and in a few weeks, we're going to play some highlights from the next 10, so from episode 11 to episode 20, and uh, and uh, hope you enjoyed that as well, and if you have any other comments and you want to reach out to us, follow us on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod, or on Facebook at Famous Lost Words. And of course, you can catch all past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or on iTunes. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. <laughs>